Welcome back to the Kaiku Podcast. Uh, the Kurosawa Chris's are with me. Hello. Hello. Uh, and we're here to talk about high and low. It feels like, uh, Chris, it feels like it has been forever since we have talked about a Kurosawa movie um, set in modern times. It may not have been forever uh, for people who have listened to us, but we believe we recorded both The Bag Sleep Well and The Lower Depths uh, quite a bit before the, the rest of the ones that we've recorded in order. Uh, and all of those were... In, like, samurai times. Uh, the, the bad sleep well was modern times. Right. But we recorded that a while ago. Yeah, it was, like, a year ago. Over yeah. a year ago. <laughs> yeah. I, I still li- I still, I still lived in Colorado with my house and my family with me. So this is at least before May of last year <laughs> yeah. that we did that movie. Oh, man. Yeah. So um, it feels like it's been a while since we've been with Kurosawa <laughs> in modern times. <laughs> Uh, high and low. We're back um, in Tokyo. In Tokyo, I don't know. We're back in modern day Japan. Uh, Chris, what is this movie about? <laughs> um, the film is about Toshiro Mifune, a high-level executive at a shoe company. He's a good man in the face of evil capitalism. He makes good quality shoes, meant to last because while hats may be worn atop a woman's head, shoes carry her entire weight. And therefore, they must do a good job. But the other executives, they decide, you know, fuck you. We want to make garbage for less money that we can still charge about the same for to make more profits. It's it's the it's the old it's the tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Um, and Mifune basically says uh, they, they 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 try to coax him into joining forces with them to kick out the founder and CEO of the company. Uh, they didn't really give really good reasons why. They just said he was stubborn. Uh, Mifune basically says, fuck you, because I'm going to make good shoes. I have pride in my work. Um, and so he tells him to get the boot. He reveals his plan to his wife just like 10 minutes later, it feels like, uh, in real time in the movie, that he has secretly been buying massive shares of, sh- of stock in the company and it will boost his uh, total percentage to something like 54 or 56% of uh, holdings in the entire company. So he, he kind of knew that this was coming. He's going to double back on them and kick all of those guys out so that he can run the company the way that he feels should be run. Um, immediately after he kicks these people out, he, he gets a phone call and says, we've kidnapped your son. You need to pay us 30 million yen or we're going to kill him. Um, the timing is very conspicuous because all of these events just occurred. And we learned that the final stock buyout that he's planning on making that he just finalized right before the, the ransom phone call is for 50 million yen. And he's about to send his secretary off to Osaka to deliver the money and finish buying the stocks when he realizes, oh, shit, I need to spend 30 of this turns out his son wasn't kidnapped it was the chauffeurs in a classic case of mistaken identity and what progresses next is what some people you know if you hear the basic story uh, the basic plot a lot of people would think it is your basic ransom movie you know a lot of people think back to uh 
Ransom, the not-so-great Mel Gibson film um, from the late 90s, and, you know, any other movie where somebody gets kidnapped and they have to have a ransom. It follows a lot of the same ideas at first. You know, don't call the cops. Well, I called the cops. Um, We're going to play along with your little game, and we're going to pretend we're going to give you the money, but the cops are sneaking around, and, oh, we make the drop, and, oh, now we're going to get in, and we're going to arrest the guy. And it feels like that only takes like 25 minutes, but I'm sure it was an hour and a half of this two and a half hour movie. It, <laughs> yeah, it took an hour to get the kick back. Spoilers, the kid get, comes back uh, before the end of the movie, uh, which like I thought this was going to be the entire movie. Uh, he's yeah. trying to get the kick back, but no, it's just an hour. And then the rest of the hour and a half is... Uh, <laughs> the rest of the film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it went really fast. It's a very fast-paced, involving uh film but what separates it is it was really interesting that you think that it's going to focus on Toshiro uh Mifune's character but for the bulk but for the bulk of the film you're actually following the cops as they're doing their investigation and trying to trying to find this killer because we've we we we, or this kidnapper spoilers um (laughs) (laughs) um because we learned that he's actually, like, super clever. Like, all the things that he orchestrated is so wicked fucking smart. Um, th- th- it's the kind of really, really interesting crime caper suspense thriller stuff that we normally associate with Alfred Hitchcock. And, you know, of course I'm going to throw that name out because if you look up this movie, about anyone else who has written a iota about the movie has, oh, compared it to Hitchcock. Um, this was filmed in uh, 1963, so Hitchcock was at the height of his powers. Uh, Psycho had come out just a couple years before that. You're basically in Hitchcock's biggest run of films at this point. Um, the Birds came out a year after uh, High and Low, so yeah, it, this is Hitchcock ruled the suspense world during the four or five years before and after this film came out. So you, you're going to have to draw those parallels. But it's actually, it's a really ingenious little film. Like, I think it's interesting how it uh, it doesn't paint the cops as heroes, which is good, because all cops are bastards. Um, but also because it, it, it makes it makes the cops feel like more like you and me. And, and it's really about the dogged police work, the following leads and getting lucky. It, does, it doesn't glamorize any of the the plot elements and you just really follow along and get engaged with it. Um, another interesting aspect is this film or this film is based off of a novel called King's Ransom, who was written by Evan Hunter under his pen name, Ed McBain. Um, I don't know who out there is listening that knows the name Ed McBain. I certainly don't didn't know it, uh, before looking up on this movie, but he's a very prolific and popular uh, crime novelist in the 40s and 50s. He even had his own TV show, like his uh, biggest like creation character. You know, you know, I'm talking like, uh, oh, what's the name? Shit. <laughs> uh, Raymond Chandler and uh, the other big film noir guy, they had their famous creations. One of them was played by, uh, or actually both of them were played by uh, Humphrey Bogart in two separate movies. Sam, Sarah, Sam Spade. Ha <laughs> ha! There it is. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but the the character is name is like uh, Steve something. I don't fucking know because I don't know who the hell this writer is. All right, I had it all looked up, but I forgot about it in my brain. Anyway, he had this huge run of film noir novels. Uh, 
very popular character at the center of it, very Mike Hammer-esque, very Sam Spade-esque. Um, the most famous movie that I think a lot of uh, film noir people would know is The the Concrete Jungle. It I don't know how it holds up, because I haven't seen it, but it's basically the template of your Stand By Me, uh, not Stand By Me, Lean On Me type of, you know, teacher coming into a hard-edged urban school and you got to put the the delinquents in place um i think the blackboard jungle is all white people though so it's probably holds up a lot better than you would think if i said that it was the template for movies like lean on me and all those uh teacher things but also sorry long-winded getting to the point this motherfucker also wrote alfred hitchcock's the birds so there's even a direct hitchcock link in there um Okay, I'm sorry. Finally getting around to it. <laughs> Finally getting around to it. If only I could have remembered that stupid character's name, I wouldn't have spun off in circles. Like it, it, <laughs> it ruined my whole my my whole mojo. Um, I really like this movie. Um, as I was saying earlier, I thought this would be a kidnapping caper from the beginning uh, to the end, but it was not. It only took an hour, and then um, it was a hunt for the kidnapper slash killer. As Chris said, uh, for an hour and a half, and that was incredibly, incredibly thrilling. Uh, throughout the whole movie, it just seemed like uh, every uh, every cliche about these types of movies, where it's like, no, you don't go to the payphone near your apartment because then you'll know. Like it feels like it came from this movie and movies like this one. Uh, so now people don't do that, and people have to be a little clever in their in their uh, kidnapping and. Uh, killing of heroin addicts now. <laughs> it, it should be noted that, um, like, like we mentioned, this came out in 1963, so we're actually pretty far beyond the the main movement of the American film noir. Uh, that was back when Kurosawa did uh, Stray Dog. That was in the thick of the film noir. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm no film noir expert, but it is it would be pretty interesting to find out uh, from any film noir experts how many of these tropes uh, existed previous to this film, um, and what maybe if there were some kind of subversions, or if you know writers afterwards were like, guys, we got to do better than using the payphone outside your house, even mm-hmm. though it's even though it's used in this film, it's so smart. It, it does. Mm-hmm. It's not. It, it, it does. It's not pointed to as. Oh, this big fatal error. It's just when they figure out who the kidnapper is, they're like, it fits all of our clues. We definitely got this fucker instead of, oh, payphone, there's the fingerprints. We got the guy. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I, I mean, I love anything that's like dogged detective work, but just, you know, an hour and a half of them trying to put the puzzle pieces together and then finally, like, the chase at the end, trying to get the this brilliant um, mastermind to almost either slip up or use his own genius against him and i think in the case of high and low it's the latter like they know what he's gonna they figured out what he's gonna do and they figured out like how how he's able to get away with it all but they get him with one thing and it's a little hokey because they're like hey nobody report on this like nobody report that this thing has happened or else he will realize we're going to be able to trap him but um but beyond that uh and i mean I guess 1960s, it's a lot easier to not have someone accidentally tweet something out. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel I feel as if you know the media has always had problems. <laughs> like that's that's no you know the media is not perfect. 
but I think I think especially now with like, oh great, you guys are just gonna report on every bullshit that happens that is a lie. You're gonna just tweet things and make articles enforcing a lie instead of calling it out as a lie. The, yeah, they they would have had no restraint being asked very politely. You know, they they even like the reporters in this. They even got like, well, instead, you know, we'll publish your fake story and keep this hidden, but uh, we'll go ahead and attack that other company because fuck those guys. <laughs> like, like, it's this really weird, like, the journalists are actually really awesome, and you, that just, it, it's not, it's only hokey by today's standards because, oh my god. Yes, oh my god. I mean, if it, have, if it was set today, like, there would literally be, it, it just, I mean, so the next door neighbor would be like, hey, there's something going on next door to my house. What is it? The news would all swarm on the house like within five minutes, but they were able to keep it under wraps. Um, I thought so early in the movie, um, um, Toshiro Mifune or Gondo's wife, uh, Mrs. Gondo, uh, played by Kyoko Kagawa, by the way, who is one of the legendary actresses of Japan. Um, she says basically in the quote in the subtitles was success isn't worth losing your humanity. And so I feel that's like right when he kind of explains what his plan is like i'm gonna stab these guys in the back i'm gonna seize control of this company for myself i've leveraged every single thing we have in order to do this and it will all pay off and then he has to basically have this dilemma of well initially it's his son and he's like okay yeah whatever i will go bankrupt to save my son and then it's the chauffeur's son and he's like, well, the chauffeur doesn't have money to pay the ransom, so obviously the kidnapper's going to go, whoops, I'll give you the kid back, my bad. And obviously the chauffeur is like, well, I'll still force you to pay this ransom because now you're in a massive dilemma. Either everyone's going to hate you or and you'll have control of the company and the company will sink or you every, you will lose everything and the you know, you'll pay the ransom and do the right thing. And he decides, of course, to do the right thing. But I think it's the way it's portrayed is really well done. There's a scene um, when he's, I think it's the morning after the kidnapping plot's revealed and he's got to debate what to do. And he's basically explaining, oh, uh, like how he doesn't feel like he should rescue the, like pay the ransom. And he's going over his entire, like, I guess, the dark, like the devil on his shoulder and what the devil on his shoulder is telling him. And you can just see these all these cops are like moving away from him as he's explaining it. He's moving throughout the room, and the cops are just backing up. Like this guy is, it just like gives you a visual of, oh, this guy's, you know, this is the bad uh, Gondo speaking. And then they're all closer to him and clustered together when he actually is like, okay, I'll pay the ransom. Let's figure out how to make this work so we can catch the kidnapper and at least get the kidnapper arrested. Um, and so, and, and it's and. I mentioned this before we went on the air with you guys, but I paused this movie a couple times. I paused movies a lot. Um, every time I paused, I like sat back down, and it was like looking at a painting. It's just the Kurosawa is so brilliant with the way every single scene was framed, the way every character was placed on the screen. I, I mean, what more can you say? I mean, he could take the most boring, mundane plot ever, and you would at least have an absolute joy watching the way he sets every scene up and the way everybody's just the way everything is laid out. It's just brilliant. Yeah. Well, hell, it was like the first 45 minutes or so. Like we never left, uh, Kingo's, uh, 
living room. Yeah, I thought I genuinely was like at, at about the forty minute mark. I was like, oh, is this just a con- conceptual movie where he films the entire thing in this room? Because I didn't re. I when I see it's a detective movie. I'm like, no, I'm not reading the plot summary uh, <laughs> because I, I do like the the, the the element of surprise in in um, police and the detective dramas. Um, I did like that. I mean, as soon as we leave the house, we basically get introduced to who the kidnapper is. Like, we don't know. Ex- it's definitely that person right away, but it's laid out that, oh, yeah, this guy's probably attached to the crime based on the way he's kind of researching what's going on with the investigation yeah but even um, though we see even if you see his face we have no clue who he is so yeah, i think we that's, don't, yeah that, that's one thing that it, like a lot of movies like oh we must conceal who the person is but this is like super super smart in that like we see him and we're like okay so that's the killer okay cool but you still don't know who he is you know nothing about them and so it never detracts from any of the mystery um, I'm sorry, Corey, but Twin Peaks is a great example of this um, because we, we 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 essentially find out who the killer was really really early in the series. Um, especially if you watch the European version of the pilot, uh, they added an extra like 30 minutes to the pilot episode and released it in Europe as a movie just in case the the series didn't get picked up. And so you know immediately who the killer is of Laura Palmer. But then as the series goes on, it begins to obfuscate and, and it begins to introduce um, the supernatural and it begins to introduce these ideas about um, internal personalities and the dualities of people that all of a sudden you're like, okay, so this is the killer, but now you have no idea who the killer is, even though you, you learned it really early on it it, is just i think that's extraordinarily good writing um but i had to bring up twin beats (laughs) i sat back started reading twitter while you talked why are you such a jerk uh no i agree um the uh the introduction of the kidnapper is uh such a such a great like physical manifestation of what they're trying to get after, but he's just in a room when you see him the first time, so you don't really know uh, even where he is uh, besides in a room. Lots of places have rooms, um, so you see you you've also just left like the the house of luxury high on the hill that you know is the house of luxury high on the hill, and you're like in the low of the city of Yokohama and it's like yeah, it just looks like not like it's very jarring from where you were for the first 45 minutes of the movie mm-hmm. I see what you did there and I don't appreciate it that's, that's <laughs> why they named it high and low or incorrect they didn't name hell. it high and low it's he- heaven and hell I know <laughs> <laughs> which fits also <laughs> it, it does I, li- I like I like heaven and hell better uh, it is because a better title at the end of the film when you know the the at the end of the film, <laughs> there's a scene. Yes. <laughs> At the end of the film, it really kind of delivers um, a lot of the the themes back um, about high and low, you know, high position and low position. But I think the heaven and hell works really well, works better even because even though the story takes a, a hard right and completely goes away from this whole capitalist, you know making cheap shit or we're you know 
we're going to kick you out of the company and ripping people off because it's all about profits and shareholders, even though nobody else gets paid any better. I feel that that was that was not an accident. The the very um, economic politics laid out at the beginning of the film, they are the true cause of all the events that happen thereafter. So it's not so much the high position of Gondo or the low position of the the kidnapper. It's 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 the economic situations that created those disparities and created the their independent attitudes because we see that Gondo has um, a series of attitudes at the beginning. He changes a lot towards the end, um, but we see that the kidnapper he's not able to change his attitudes, even though you know he got thirty million yen at one point in his life. He he wasn't able to change the attitudes, and so I I, I feel that the the heaven and hell moniker fits a better description because it's not high and low. It's living in good graces and suffering. And uh, I think Kurosawa really gets that through, the heaven and hell, high and low, whatever you want to call it, gets it through through both uh, the the shooting, like the framing of every shot, and also the um, the place in which every scene is set. Like, we see Gongdo uh, several times throughout the, throughout the movie. He's ostensibly the main character. Um, but we only ever see him either in that uh, giant house, apartment, whatever it is, on top of the hill, uh, and then we see him in the train. And I believe those are the only two places. And the train is not somewhere where he chose to go by himself. That's where the kidnapper told him to go so he could drop off the money. But we see these policemen uh, all over the place. We see him up high trying to help this uh, extremely wealthy man with his uh, missing 30 million yen because the the kidnapper, and we see them... um, Creeping across uh, all parts of Yokohama is where they are. I guess I don't know. I don't know where they are. <laughs> You're absolutely correct. But there's one extra time that we do see Gondo, and I think it's a really interesting um, because of the way that you you know just presented your evidence. Like that is a hundred percent spot on. But we see him one other time. We we don't find out until after this scene. I, I mean, it's like 15 minutes after we see him that we learn that he, spoilers, I guess, um, it, it did effectively lose everything. And he's starting over from scratch, low man on the totem pole, making shoes, loses his house, loses everything. We find that out later, but we can, you can surmise that that's what happened because, as you, as you noted, he is only seen in places of luxury until during the, the super impressive and massive uh, stakeout where the kidnappers being followed to try and purchase some heroin that was just that whole thing was just brilliant like mm -hmm. as an isolated like you could isolate just that as the reason to watch this movie it was so fucking good um (laughs) but the uh the kidnapper they 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 are following him and then the main cops that are kind of like the lead cops are sitting in their car and they're like what's he doing he's just like hanging out now like what the hell and you see him walk across the street that was Gondo, who was staring oh, through the window, right. looking at shoes. And the kidnapper has the balls. He just walks up and is like, can I borrow a light? And Gondo lights his fucking cigarette for him. <laughs> um, all of that is framed in a very low-town atmosphere. It's very busy. It's very dirty. There's just tons of people moving back and forth. So if you take Corey's examples of 
how the mezzanine shows Mifune's high stature, we can see that at that time he's already fallen and is in, now in the lowly uh, stature because he now now you see him in a dirty, busy strip mall area. And you see that in like the scene uh, either immediately prior or like very soon before that when there is the uh, the debt collectors that are just putting stickers on everything that says this is possessed property. He is mm-hmm. no longer the owner of that apartment and um, all of the uh, or any agency he once had there it no longer exists. Like he's allowed to be there now because um, well they don't really have to do anything to do with it until the auction. So uh, why not just let him say pack up what minimal possessions he can still have and then he's left to go to the squalors of uh, whatever script mall that is and scare choose. While looking still pretty dapper, he got to keep his suits. <laughs> yeah, I guess they don't auction those off. Back then, they were probably all tailored and custom fit anyway, so... <laughs> well, I mean, he was, like, wearing a in. suit mowing the lawn at one point, so I think that was just his clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I did catch that, and I thought, like, that was, like, a very, like, almost a deliberate, okay, we're in this middle of a pretty intense... Uh, intense movie let's just have a weird scene of levity where this guy's just mowing the lawn in a suit <laughs> well it was him thinking like he, when he's mowing the lawn like he's pissed like you yeah. see him he's just yeah, like he's just he's not... anger mowing yeah that is another low on high though like you don't see him doing anything uh any sort of manual labor or menial labor like that up until that point yes uh, yeah and before that someone's always bringing him something yeah uh i can't believe we've gone this far without mentioning um your, your boy? Your boy is in it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have, uh, yeah, we have two boys now. Um, Shimura was in this, of course. He's the chief of investigation headquarters, is what it says in the booklet. Uh, I don't know if that's, like, uh, the exact title. It seems very poorly written. Uh, <laughs> I think that's what it says on the in the actual credits, too. Okay. Uh, let, me find, let me find him real quick. Chief of Investigation Section. So, like, yeah. literally, like, he's the boss of the boss. He has, like, one line in the movie. Yeah. He, he, just, he just sits there while all the cops give their reports and follow the investigation. He, it, basically, instead of asking dude to give me a report by, by end of day, he just sits in on the meetings like a good boss. <laughs> He's living I a think good retirement. Every scene he's in is filmed in that exact same spot, isn't it? Like I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And the yeah, other he's one like Yeah, he's not doing any of the chasing. <laughs> yeah. And the other one, of course, is uh the newcomer, Taxi Nakagai, who was in uh Yojimbo and Zanguro. He is the inspector, the lead inspector on um Mifune's case, and uh seeing them together is uh now something I look forward to. As I look mm-hmm. forward to the Mifune Shimura pairing, he's great too. I, I I really did like the cops, and I think it was pretty great that so he may be like the lead investigator, but he's not actually the lead investigator. There's one guy who's technically above him that just hangs out there all the time, and they just call him Basun, like <laughs> in every anime that I've ever seen. Yeah, he he's got like a, he's yeah chief detective Taguchi, but everybody just calls him Basun. Yeah, this is where it and comes he's. From. Like, Boston's actually character, a couple lines of dialogue do, like, a lot of elaboration on the high and low, the heaven and hell aspect. It's because he mentions, like, oh, I kind of hate rich people. Like, I grew up poor. Like, I don't really feel bad for this guy. And then he's like, I will do, and then 
Um, Gondo's like, I'll pay the ransom and I'll lose everything. And Boston is like, I will do everything to help you. <laughs> like, we, we will take out this kidnapper. <laughs> you are the greatest human being I have ever met. Yeah, it's yeah, Dude. like immediately, and it and that's like it sums up the public opinion too of what Gondo was weighing. Either everyone will hate him for not paying the ransom, and he'll be able to, you know, run the company and have all the luxury he wants, or he'll lose everything and be a Fallen, be a hero who you know has to start from the bottom of the totem pole. It helps too that um, you see uh, you see that Boston uh, interviews the former uh, the former coworkers <laughs> of uh, of Gongdo. And what were you just, able to get out of the executives? They're assholes. Yeah, <laughs> they're assholes is what he, is what he got, and he also sees the scene with the debt collectors that I believe he sees the scene with the debt collectors he, where they're like, they're the te- yeah, I think he's there for it. Yeah, yeah, where they're the debt collectors are like, you shouldn't have paid these kidnappers if you couldn't pay us. We're not the ones that have to foot the bill for this. <laughs> like, you see everybody basically saying you should have sacrificed this human child's life to uh, to further yourself, to pay us back, to do this and that. And uh, he realizes that Gagno is a, a much better man than uh, initial uh, impressions may have told you. It's a really subtle transformation by Mifune, too. I mean, we go over it. Be- Mifune is considered one of the greatest actors of all time for a goddamn reason, people. <laughs> you know, it's not just it's not just us, you know, being mesmerized by an actor that we really like. He is so good at everything he does. Um, the way that you see that internal struggle that was uh, Corey was describing earlier, uh, the devil on his shoulder and him going from fear and worry that it was his son to apathy when he finds out it's the chauffeur's son. And by the end of the movie, he it really humbled his entire soul. He's a very different person um, by the end of the movie. And he's he just exudes this enlightened grace if you will um it's just it's it's really incredible work for a character that we actually don't spend that much time with you really get to know gondo really really well uh based off of how mifune plays him as these events um shape his fate one more one more actor i want to talk about this is the first movie he's in is is um uh, he's the villain. The kidnapper is a uh, Sutomo Yamazaki, who many of us probably know from Tom Popo. He was Goro. What? Yeah, yeah. Hold on. I'm gonna find this guy. Good. There he is. I mean, like this is 20 years before his his role in Tom Popo, but uh, even Space Battleship Yamato, baby, <laughs> <laughs> the live action movie that Funimation put out. Oh, when did he do that? Oh, I guess, yeah. In uh, 2010, yeah. Ooh. Takashi Miike's Blade of the Immortal. Who is this guy? My goodness. But this was his first film. Yeah, yeah this was the first film he was in. We'll see him That's in a couple awesome. more Kurosawa movies, it looks like. Yes, he will show up in a couple more. That's super That's super cool. Damn. Kurosawa had a knack. There's a fair amount. We've talked about a couple of the um, of, act, of actors, I think, who've like made their first or second appearance, or at least first, like, you know, somewhat significant role in a Kurosawa movie. Like he found talented, talented actors for his movies. Because I mean, everybody, of course, at this point wants to be in them. So, <laughs> yeah. like, he has to know which ones are actually gonna, I think, do the best work. And he's found that a lot. <sighs> Must be nice. 
must yes must be nice well he's got the time you know everybody wants to to work with him so he gets to go through all those auditions and find just the right person he doesn't have someone fall out three days before shooting and you have to replace somebody two days before shooting and you think that it's going to turn out okay and it turns out fucking awful so you're just gonna edit together your piece of junk and hope and then do your best true life true life i did want to mention like that last scene um kurosawa uh, kurosawa uh, mifune is requested to go to the uh the prison to see the kidnapper um he didn't want to be read any last rites by anybody uh because he doesn't want to be prayed for he doesn't he either didn't like believe in hell or he didn't uh, care that he was going there or was going to die um and that scene between mifune and the kidnapper is just brilliant um you finally get to these are the first words the kidnapper says you finally get to get some sort of uh inkling into what is in his head and uh as far as i could garner it was like absolutely nothing he was just angry at the rich well he he, he spares us the sob stories so there's there's more tragedy in his past but he's like you want me to tell you my woes? Fuck you. Just know <laughs> that I hate your bitch ass, and I'm not afraid to die, but actually he really, really was. And I think yeah, that's I yeah. think that's a really smart thing. You know, like, we've mentioned it a few times. This is such an incredibly well-written script. Um, I think I read a thing that there was actually a lot more dialogue during that final scene, but Kurosawa just said, fuck it, we're not going to do it. Um, which, which works, because you, you're... You watch it and you're like, okay, so here's this vague idea about why this guy did all of it. But then you're you're like, it's another thing. You if you were to make this movie today, the internet would be ablaze about they didn't explain everything because I'm so fucking stupid. I need it all spelled out for me. Why did he do it? You can't just be mad at the rich. I I hate. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you're right. I, I I I mean, I mean, we know that. I think that final scene shows us that at the end of the day this like this kidnapper deserves no sympathy i mean he kidnapped mm-hmm. a child and it and, and he just killed like three heroines and, and killed heroin like he was preying on children and the desperate like because out of his own anger and i think when he has that dialogue at the end he realizes like oh i actually i am i'm a, i fucked up i'm a terrible person and that's like the last we see. That's like the end of the movie is him just, I think, coming to grips with everything he did. The fact that he's going to die. The world will always hate him. And, mm. and you see both the literal and figurative curtain call there as, uh, yeah. as a metal curtain drops between Kurosawa and the kidnapper as the police take him away. And I mean, you get just enough information to understand that it was the stresses of economic disparity that pushed him here. But he does. You don't get all of his woes and pity, every small trauma, to try to excuse his actions. It's like, yes, the the economic disparity is bad. We understand this. Uh, Kurosawa is not sympathetic uh, um, to the rich people at all. He's looking at this disparity and saying this disparity is wrong. But no amount of hardship excuses the the actions taken by this person and we should accept that like we 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 keep looking for motives you know why did this person go commit that crime you know all the white guys that are called lone wolves everybody's got to dig in and figure out 
why exactly, what exactly led them to this. But if you're a person of color, it's an ideological act of terrorism. Oh, because you're Muslim or some other psychotic reason. Um, we are obsessed with people that we identify with trying to understand every minute detail when it doesn't have to be, oh, this very specific instance is what led him to that. No, the, the situation, situations play a bigger role in our personal motives than individual incidents. And this movie very smartly understands that and, and plays with that to, to illustrate to us we don't need to know what the trigger was. We are supposed to be mad at the system. We do not have sympathy for the criminal because he did heinous things, but we need to be mad at the system that created the environment that allowed um, allowed whatever incidents that occurred to him to happen. And I love that. I think that's super smart. This is also a time uh, in Japan, 1963 is a time in Japan, in which uh, American occupation is uh, ramping down a little bit, so there's not those people everywhere. In the movie, you still see them. There's a presence of uh, clearly non-Japanese people in one of the scenes uh, who are, who appear to be like military people. Um, and there is also some sort of recession going on, I believe. So uh, even though he is this doctor, he's presumably going to make a good living for himself after he stops being an intern. Um, he, he is living in, like, this studio apartment, um, and he sees the the luxury that he could have but doesn't have every single day as he stares outside of his window into Gongo's apartment. Yeah, a fucking medical intern, you know, and that's another thing, like, they struggle with that in the in the film a little bit, too. You know, why, why the hell would a medical intern... What? It, none of it none of it makes sense because it's not people in it or incidents it's situations even though he's going to do better for himself in just a couple of years he's already been beaten and and rubbed down by that point it's it's crazy like cuz we see it all the time you're like he had such a good future ahead of him why would they do that again we ask for these it has to be an incident but it, it it's not i thought the whole um whole aspect of him being a medical intern like because usually you're thinking this guy's downtrodden but i mean if he's in medical school and he's going to be a doctor i mean he's if he's doing poorly now he won't be doing poorly much longer um why go ahead and do this it was and and we just we don't we don't know why we just know that he was filled with anger and hatred and i think that is enough I don't think we need to know that there was like this pivotal trauma where like he was walking down the street and Gondo like walked past him and snoop like s stuck his nose up at him or something like Gondo's forced to pay for his I guess you know he seems like the the of all the business people the most upstanding in terms of wanting to just not maximize profits at all costs like the people in the factory like him and he came from the factory but I mean in spite of that you know, the person on the on the bottom is looking up at him and thinking that this guy is just mocking me with his house, and I'll never never get to that level. So, what's the point of getting trying to of this medical school I'm doing? Um, is one thing I kind of got must have been his thought process. But overall, we don't need to know. We just know I, he kidnapped and killed people. Like screw him, he deserved to die. <laughs> yep. Basically, what we're saying is this movie is really really good and. 
I love movies that generate this kind of discussion. You know, mm-hmm. they, they give you things to think about that are completely, you know, extra textual. Uh, you know, there's there's stuff that's talked about and shown in the film that inform interpretation, but we're just running off of it and seeing how uh, other things in our lives, in the world around us, you know, 55 years later. It's it's such a good fucking movie, guys. Yeah, I mean, if I've learned anything about Kurosawa watching uh, how many movies we've watched so far, it's that uh, I could watch Kurosawa do uh, detective stories, cop stories, and modern times forever uh, and be completely fine with that. Um, I know we have more uh, samurai movies coming up uh, with, uh, I believe, Redbeard was one, Kagimusha, Ron, Ron, whatever else. Um, well, Redbeard's not a samurai film, but it, it takes place in those okay. times. Well, that's something I'll learn when I move off Redbeard. It's a medical drama. <laughs> <laughs> like a... Yeah, Kurosawa can clearly make these types of thriller movies or uh, buddy cop movies like Stray Dog, and uh, I want to watch all of them, or more of them, I should say. Which is why we're doing this podcast. We are watching all of them. Yeah. But no, it, it, it's it's good. Like it, 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 I watch this movie, and it gets you in this mood for, for more uh, mysteries, more, more, more crime mysteries, which are, uh, is a genre of film I've always super loved. But at the same time, I don't want to leap into it and grab something off my shelf because it's probably not going to be as good. I mean, I have out from out, out of the past over here. I haven't watched, which I hear is excellent. So, you know, maybe I'll go there, but you know, who knows? All right. Um, anyone have anything else to say on this film before we close this out? Uh, baby Yoda is in it. So, um, <laughs> for all you Mandalorian fans out there, you'll definitely want to check this out. It's a really, it's a really surprising cameo. It takes place when, um, when the uh, the villain, the, the kidnapper, is trying to purchase some drugs uh, with in the most elaborate way possible. Which I'll have to watch that scene again. Supposedly, that dance that they make is the fucking dance that John Travolta and Uma Thurman rock in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> they like Quentin Tarantino straight up saw it and was like, this is the piece I'm going to take from this movie. So I want to watch it again just to see that. But yeah, Baby Yoda is in there in the club. Um, it's pretty dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> if you like detective movies, this is, you got to watch this. It's that plus just the masterful work of Kurosawa, who for the most part can do no wrong. All right. Um, let's close this section out, Chris. Where can we find you on the internet? I am on Twitter at Antonius Pius. Um, you can follow me. Um, I'm trying to talk about more movies and watch more movies, but we'll see. I should have a lot of time around the holidays, so I might just go crazy for like four days and watch like five, five, six movies and talk about all of them. Like a good plan. Gotta see Nine's Out still. Knives I, Out is fucking awesome. Oh, yeah. See Knives Out, everyone. Go see Knives Out. If, if, you, if, you, if, if you, you like Knives Out, mystery, watch this movie. <laughs> yeah. Or if you like this movie, go watch Knives Out. Vice versa. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's take a break. And uh, Chris and I will be back to talk about some sort of anime. I don't know. <laughs> well, before we go, just want to say to our listeners real quick, um, the next Kurosawa film is the long-awaited and... Uh, very much anticipated by me, Redbeard, but that'll be for a few months, most likely, because we are at the end of the year, and you're going to start getting our best of lists for the year, and the uh, the generally agreed upon decade, even though it's not really uh, the decade. 
So it'll be a while before we get to uh, the next Kurosawa film. Please, please be patient. Yeah, we're trying to hold out uh, Mifune moves as long as we can. Redbeard is his last one with uh, Kurosawa, so we are at the end of a glorious run. All right, see you on the other side. Chris is not on the other side with us, but you can find uh, him on Twitter at GoKoofy. And uh, you can find him on Letterboxd, also at GoKoofy, where he is watching approximately 5 billion movies. We are back, and Ink is joining us. Hi, everybody. And we're here to talk about Kangagawa Jet Girls. Uh, it's an anime. Ink, would you like to uh, break it down, or shall I? Uh, let me take a stab at uh, summarizing this very complex sports anime um, in which a small-town girl goes to Tokyo uh, and really wants to race jet skis because her mother is this like really awesome jet ski or was sorry she's dead now um she, <laughs> she was a really uh, famous jet ski racer really really awesome won all the races had all the fame had the daughter daughter didn't have the mother because like she died um but you know daughter's following a mother's footsteps wants to get into a school with a club that has jet ski racing, but oh no, jet ski club doesn't really exist at that school anymore because of lack of interest, kind of like our interest in this anime. And <laughs> uh, sure enough, she finds the love of her life and uh, another jet ski enthusiast at the school, and then ah, they have to build a club. So to build the club, they have to go around getting members, of course, and... Uh, they find like a mechanic and a cheerleader and other people who don't really do anything, but they're part of the club anyway. Um, and that's really the whole thing. And they race occasionally, uh, but mostly it's just cross shots. Yeah. And boob shots and boob shots. Uh, perhaps the more, more complicated part of this is explaining the jet racing at all. There is, uh, the racer who drives the, the jet ski. And then there is a gunner who, uh, has a gun full of water. And they shoot the other person, or the or the jet ski thingy, um, which will like slow down the jet ski, and that's bad, obviously. Or they shoot the other person, and their uh, suits will just burst off themselves for safety. For safety. Uh, yeah. So this anime was not good. Uh, what are you thinking? I thought it was probably one of the most terrible sports animes I've seen in a long time. Probably one of the most horrible anime I've seen in a long time. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I don't... Oh, the staff forgetting to ask Amelia about it. But uh, this may be the worst one that we've watched yet. I think okay. it's worse what, than... What made it Wanda so bad Strongest. for you? Uh, I think it was just like the lack of... Uh, the lack of motivation beyond um, just wanting to be a good jet skier. Like, that'll skate you across some, some anime that have a little better story, like Cinderella 9, Cinderella Girls, Cinderella 9. It was Cinderella 9, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that'll skate you across 
for those type of anime that have a little bigger um, a little bigger character, but not really that much, uh, and a much better story, which is like trying to build this girl's baseball team from the ground. Um, even like want to be the strongest in the world, which is the second worst thing that we've ever talked about, <laughs> has, has a uh, a push to it. This idol who wants to prove that she can be a professional wrestler for some reason. And that's much better than wanting to create a jet ski club because her mom, who is dead for some reason, I don't think we ever learned the reason. Uh, oh, I hope this gets a season two just so we can learn how the mother died, <laughs> and I hope it's by de- jet ski racing. Uh, yeah, so she wants to create because her mom died, or because her mom was one, and she is dead, uh, which is not really a relevant plot point. Nope. <laughs> besides, that, uh, that's kind of sad. Like, <laughs> you want your parents to be around, right? <laughs> The whole thing is she's looking for her mother in uh, the girl that she meets. uh, What the hell is her name? Misa? Misa, yeah. Yeah. She's looking for her mom in Misa. That's why they fall in love. Because this is also a really trashy Yuri anime, too. Yeah, all of the pairs um, seem to be in some sort of love. Mm. Uh, Especially... well, now uh, they don't have any descriptions for them, so I have no idea which one it is. But in, like, the third episode or something, you just see these two girls sitting in a dressing room in their brawn panties, and, like, gradually as they cut away from them to the race and then cut back to them, they are, like, closer and closer, eventually sitting, uh, one of them sitting in the other's lap. It's just, yeah. uh, that's the kind of anime is, this is. Is is that the, uh, the idol pop duo? I think it's them, Yeah. Yeah. Hell's Kitchen, right. Hell's Kitchen, yeah. <laughs> they do, like, the love sign. Like, the fusion dance, but the love sign. Mr. Mister Pop Idol Enthusiast. Uh, yep, that's me. Uh, I really don't know how to make this more than, well, longer than it already is. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast thing is. Uh, because, like, the show was so insubstantial. It felt uh, in every episode that nothing was happening and nothing would be pushed forward. Um, and by the end, the spoilers, they win whatever thing they're trying to race in, like the the big thing, and I think that's a, a big race, but it doesn't really feel like a good payoff, because they're newbies, and like, they just happen to win this because they're better, but, well, the racer is a newbie, and then the, the gunner is actually experienced, but still. Yeah, but there's, there's never any real emphasis put on the racing, even though every episode, even the beginning one, ends in a race, and it's like, wow, we haven't even gotten to know these characters at all and oh okay well you know racing happens yep. and it's it's completely uninvested yeah and they would have won that race had the uh the main girl rin known how to use the booster thingy in the jet which, which i thought was which i thought was actually kind of nice like okay sure she's not experienced on anything more than you know the training jetter that uh <laughs> her her mother let her use or whatever but you know, if she followed the sport, she would have known that there's like, <laughs> such a thing as a boost. <laughs> she only rewatches clips of her mom on YouTube. There you go. But there's, I mean, if you want to delve into some of the, the horrible things about this, um, there's always the introduction of the main character, who, like, we see she she's getting out of a bathroom at age six or whatever and going to her hump dolphin. Um, and... <laughs> the way they actually link and I, I love this because in Waking Life and the, you can tell I'm from Old Taco No Radio because I'm t- 
tying this together with Waking Life. Um, but there was a story in Waking Life in which uh, one person asks another about how people connect pictures of their past selves with their current selves and it always has to be a story something like oh this was me at age nine when i was such and such or doing such and such and the way the anime actually lets you know that this little girl is now this teenage girl is they use the same coming out of the bathroom shot (laughs) it's horrible absolutely fucking horrible they did have uh one moment in that episode. Uh, God, I'm about to praise this. Uh, they did have one moment in that episode that was actually pretty good uh, for establishing how like airheaded uh, Rin is, and she like goes to the bathroom, washes her hands, and then she just walks out without turning off the water. And then the gag in the background, he's like, "You left the water on again." Uh, but then like, that? but then I don't think there's anything else that reaches that level of character development or character. Uh, not development. She didn't develop anything. She just uh, the the show not tell of uh, of the show. Well, that's that's kind of the problem. Like it will do stuff and then never do anything with that stuff. Like there's there's uh, there's there's a the exception to that. There's actually a good little bit of foreshadowing when you uh, first see Misa's room and she's sleeping in the lower bunk, but the top bunk is totally empty and doesn't have like any sheeting or anything. So it's obviously the place where uh, Rin is going to be, but it's it's just visual foreshadowing, and it was like, oh hey, this this is actually pretty nice. But when Misa's training on that like indoor ride along VR jet ski, um, she it, they they really establish the fact that she has this sort of photographic memory because she's evidently been down the river and she's comparing her memory to the. Uh, VR depiction and she's thrown off because it's not exactly right and I loved that and then they never really do anything with it it's like okay well she's disappointed with the VR oh well <laughs> it was just a wasted wasted bit of you know built up momentum yeah yeah there's a lot of wasted bits in here uh, she also likes the invention I like completely zoned out because I didn't want to learn anything about this series that I didn't already know <laughs> Like you mentioned three seconds ago when I wasn't listening, apparently, how she smelled, uh, she smelled Misa, and she's like, oh, yes, the bells, the bag smells like you. Yeah, yeah. What? I mean, it goes pretty hard in on that, like, we're just going to be up front and more intimate than you want, and that's pretty much a summariza- uh, summarization of <laughs> this show to its viewers. Yeah. Um, this, this was... Uh, simulcast on high dive and they did the for the first week uh you could watch it in the uncensored version and afterwards you could only watch it with the censored version and because i just wanted to see how awful this could get i watched the uncensored version oh god is it awful it's a lot of anime titty but there's also a lot of like just really uncomfortably close crotch shots yeah there's some weird uh, censoring, too. I mean, like, of course they have some weird shocks to begin with because they have to censor things at all. But, uh, like, when her... Uh, this is going to be a very weird sentence. Everything is going to be a very weird sentence with this show. But when uh, when Misa gets shot and her pants go off... Uh, <laughs> you know, just to hear it out loud... <laughs> Please yeah. continue. It's uh well uh yeah, her pants burst off and um 
they show like a couple angles like from the front you can't really see anything um and then from the side where you like see part of her ass but not her whole ass obviously because she's still wearing the underpants swimsuit whatever thing it is uh, but then they go, like, straight from the back, and you can see, uh, like, directly toward her ass, uh, and they censor that for some reason, but I'm not really sure what they're censoring, like, is there supposed to be, uh, some hole in, in her swimsuit where you can see something else? No, I think they just really drew bulges with great detail, uh, so they had to censor yeah. that out. Well, they are bulging. And the uh, the blastaway clothes bit is called a suit purgy, which you know it's just a lot of fun to say, but still it's stupid. Of course. And I actually, you know, I thought a little bit too much about this, and you know, I, I like that the commentators uh, make fun of the show itself, at least in a little bit, with that whole safety feature, safety feature, mm-hmm. a safety feature, sure. <laughs> um, but. You know, okay, the guns have limited ammo, which is a, a facet of the the racing itself that I liked. Like that's a that's a good like check and balance sort of thing because, you know, they give a little more thought to the guns in this show than they do the characters because mm-hmm. they have uh, you know the larger the gun, the more ammo it uses and the less uh, ammunition you have. So you have to kind of use it wisely and uh, sort of with a little bit of creativity to be able to use it effectively. Um, but you have to ask yourself, you know, if you shoot your the opponent's vehicle to a point where it will shut down and the vehicles have different, like, soft spots, so shooting it in one place registers a little more harshly than others, um, how does that really translate to shooting the other person in their suit? It's like, there's really no reason, right? It's just uh, fan service. Unless you think, okay, well, they're doing it to throw their rival's modesty off balance. And then it kind of makes sense. But I don't want this to make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, though. Eh. There is actually a lot of... Oh, God, I'm going to praise it again. There is actually a lot of creativity. Stop it! With, uh, with the jet racing itself, as you mentioned, the guns have limited ammunition. They have, um, like, obstacles that they have to go through, of course. And they have... Uh, so it's not just a straightaway, they also have to go uh, 180 around a turn, which um, requires some skill and strategy. Uh, so, like, the jet racing and the guns and the jet ski design is the most creative part about uh, all of this. Um, and there's a, a game coming in Japan, uh, yeah. or it came out in Japan um, 13 days ago on January 16th. Um, that if you want to get your jet racing in, I assume that's where you get it in, or maybe it's just a dating sim. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, you know, I hadn't thought about it if it would be a dating sim or not, but I did think like I would actually play this game because it would be a lot more tense than the show. Yeah, and you know what I would like? I would like the jet racing though, with like literally any other character designs. <laughs> yeah, like I, I I do like the fact that they do like sort of a wide range of body types. Sort of. Mm, uh, a wide range of body boobs. No, nah, no, nah, it's all all top heavy. But uh, you know, you have the, the the maid who's you know unfortunately body shamed throughout most of this entire run. Um, but you know, she seems to be enjoying herself. It's just her, her partner that's a you know horrible oppressive force. Uh, yeah, in the OVA, 
the OVA goes, and it's just, like, disturbing how, like, uh, she is being abused. Uh, yeah, and I'm looking at the promotional art on Wikipedia, and she has, like, giant, but, like, this can't exist, right? <laughs> Controlled in the lab. They do, uh, take quite care with their Gynax boob animation, though. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of moments where you just focus for needless seconds on bouncing anime ditty. Yep. And the ass undulations. Oh, yes, like, of course. There's, there's, I mean, I don't think anybody's really using all that ass control when you're, you know, on a jet ski, but I, you know, to be honest, I've never jet skied, so I don't know what I look from behind if I would, too. Uh, yep. I don't know. There's only one way to find out. Come watch me jet ski. After Corey. you, Keijo. <laughs> I was supposed to Keijo. I was supposed to Keijo with Vinny, and we did not, and I'm so sad about that. Yeah, Vinny, step up your yeah. game. But the other thing is, like, during during the races, like, even though you said, you know, there are, are aspects that come into play as far as tension goes during the race. Aspects. Like, <laughs> uh, power, turning radius, acceleration, top speed, all that sort of stuff, boosts, uh, length and duration, whatever. Um, it's, it's all bantered about, but really they don't seem to be implemented with any sort of rule set because no matter who does what best the underdog always comes up real close for whatever reason to lose or to win and you know it makes no difference like they're just not sticking to their own yeah yeah i mean there can be an argument made that like the floor of the worst jet racer is much higher than maybe any other sport and the ceiling is much lower than maybe any (laughs) any other sport so they're all going to be this close but uh, no, I'm not. Yeah, no. No matter how self-deprecating the series tries to be, and it's evident that they're trying to. It's, it's the way, like, sort of like Birdemic Two. Was there a Birdemic Two? What is Birdemic One? Oh, Birdemic One is great. Uh, it was just this. No, but anyway, um, <laughs> sorry. I'll say Sharknado because um, Sharknado was a horrible movie that was made to be horrible, as opposed to like Birdemic which was a movie that was someone's passion, and it just turned out horribly. And that's what Kondagawa Jet Girls is, because, you know, they try to make fun of itself, but it just seems like they're trying to make fun of, fun of itself. Let's see. I'm looking up Birdemic. Shocking terror <laughs> right now. Oh, uh, I, w- I totally want you and Chris to watch Birdemic and <laughs> podcast on it. Chris would probably love it. Uh, yeah, it is considered one of the worst films of all time. There is a Birdemic 2, The Resurrection, that is considered even worse. See, I don't know if I agree with that, because I think Birdemic 1 was such a hit that they tried to continue on in the same bad manner with Birdemic 2, but I'm, I, I can't quite recall the awfulness that was the sequel, so I, I'll hold that opinion. Oh, here we go. So, uh, this is a Birdemic podcast now. Dennis Harvey of Variety wrote, Wins partial self-awareness of his new movie's camp value only makes it a effortful half understood ing joke rather than the guilty, pleasurable, unintentional joke that was Birdemic Shocking Terror. See? Puts it so much better than I did. Just, you need a little time. You would have made. Uh, so there are uh, other, other things to bring up. Uh, the All the effort that the show puts into uh, portraying the vehicle's performance dynamics uh, or the performance metrics don't mm-hmm. really matter because the story is written around the character team conflicts. Yeah. But there's actually no real team conflicts because everyone's just so buddy buddy at the end. Yeah. 
Like, everyone's best friends. Even the idols, who were uh, openly antagonistic at the beginning, are pretty best friendly by the end. Yeah. Yeah. It was, like, you, you don't even give us reasons to watch the races, because you've totally eliminated the tension from the races. Yep. It's just like, oh, who comes in first? Eh, someone does. Yeah. One of the main characters. They're all main characters. One of the main characters. <laughs> they do is another thing that's, like, annoying about these types of shows they just like fall into uh, various character archetypes and they don't really grow or change from those or have any depth to them beyond those um the maid girl from earlier i believe is the one that says uh i don't remember anymore and i'm not going to try to remember any harder than i already have but the the random japanese catchphrase that they say at the end of sentences sometimes that's like quirky and you probably never hear it in real life those types Mm -hmm. of things yeah, like no one changes at all. Yep. The the only only change comes in I think the OVA OVA OAV OVA, um, where I think it's pretty much acknowledged that they formally acknowledge that they're like have feelings for each other, Rin and uh, the other one. Lisa. Yeah. Uh, but that's it. Like and even like the entire way through the series, everybody is pushing for them to get together, even though they don't like realize it themselves yep. which you know it's nice to see it applied to yuri as opposed to a heterosexual thing but not in this anime because this anime <laughs> sucks <laughs> <laughs> maybe it'll be more subtle in something like azoken looks like a good anime oh hell yeah uh anyway do you have anything else should we move on to question uh i will point out in the oav there's uh it pretty much is just a literal round table except it's a rectangular table but still a round table of the worst Japanese stereotypes and fetishes, which pretty much uh, represent all the teams. You have shrine maidens, uh, gaijin, like, uh, anime worshippers, or, sorry, gaijin, cool Japan worshippers, maids, you got the kogal, or the kogairu. girls. Yeah. Who I actually, I, I fucking love that fashion. (laughs) <laughs> it just seems 80s as fuck to me, and I love that. Um, but they're annoying as fuck anyway, because uh, they're in this anime. Yep. And idols, and I forget the other the other ones. Uh, idols, the main one, or Frank, American. Oh, the Shrine people. Yeah, yeah. Although I do give this props for like the Shrine episode, yep. because they, they loosely do the... Uh, the monster all throughout and it's like oh no this is the spirit of the river and it's like they try to do what is it Monoke with it uh yeah that sounds right yeah or i'm just gonna and, uh, nod and agree <laughs> and uh yeah it just turns out to be utter bullshit <laughs> <laughs> like this entire show yeah uh the shrine maiden girl that uh like goes fucking crazy whenever she gets on to a jet race jet skier that was an interesting concept at face that of course they get nothing interesting with yeah i mean it's just like oh hey watch her flip out okay she flipped out yep there's no consequence tied to it that's it she says there's consequence because like all of her previous partners ran away but we don't see that we're just told that yeah yeah, and that, that never creates any tension with her current partner because she just sort of accepts it, which yep. is okay. You accepted it. Yep. We next, accepted it. Next uh, this anime. So empty. Yep. Well, questions. Questions. All right. From Isangra, why do you do this to yourselves? Why do we do this to ourselves? It's good to watch bad shit to remember or to remind yourself of just how good the other shit you watch is. Yeah. This is also a 
uh, public service, I believe, so people will know how bad it is, and not just uh, are aware of like its existence and how bad it was. And you think, like, reviewing bad anime takes a lot less time than reviewing good anime, so, you know, if you just want to listen to a, a kick-ass podcast, but don't really have a lot of time... You tune into these episodes, and not only are you saving yourself time by avoiding watching what we watched to save you that time, but you only spend, like, 30 minutes listening to why you shouldn't watch it. Yep. And we're hopefully somewhat entertaining uh, or funny in, <laughs> in that time. And if we're not, then uh, I apologize. We're still telling you how bad this is. On the front end of this is Kurosawa's High and Low, too, which is a great move. Mm. I've not like, seen, not yet seen it. I've not uh, done much Kurosawa, uh, sadly. Well, listen to our podcast for everything up to high and low. Uh, from did, I was about to say, did no one else want to ask anything about Kondagawa Jets Girls? <laughs> yeah, I was uh, rereading the tweet to make sure it wasn't, or it was, or was not a question, so I could premiere myself in in the future. Uh, so from Inazel, E Nazel, E N Azel. Uh, only make a few episodes and all I can say it was very bad, but owing to the fact that it was a ruggy show about the commentators explaining the sport was usually pretty funny. And I agree, the commentators were typically good. Also agree. Yep. Uh, that was Kangagawa Jet Girls. Next time, Walkure Romance. Ooh, nice. You know what that one is? I've, I've seen the title before. Uh, I watched, I actually watched a couple episodes of this back when I was watching, like, literally everything. Uh, it was not good. Oh. It's about horses, though. Oh, oh, wait, is that horrible? Uh, yeah. Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> when do you think I was talking I, about? I, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, but something else popped in my head, and yeah, no. No, I do remember that now. Are we actually going to do that? No, I don't want to do it. <laughs> Come on, it could hurt so good. Uh, could, though. <laughs> I mean, it's an adult visual novel adaptation. Yes. Oh God. Well, <laughs> any last words on Kangaroo Jack Girls before we shut this thing down? Do not watch it. Yep. Don't. Have just someone don't. else blast your pants off with better effect and just you know leave this anime behind. Yeah. Watch the part where uh, the girls' clothes go off the first time, and then the commentators say for safety, and that's all you need. It really was the best part. It's yep. the only effective use of self-deprecating humor. Yep. All right, so let's close this thing out. Where can we find you on the internet? Uh, head on over to anagamers.com. I co-host a podcast with Jared uh, called Old Takuno Radio. Um, we've got uh, on Anagamers coming out. Uh, we just published our best of the year, and we're about to publish our uh, best of the decade, even though the decade doesn't actually end till next year. Uh, but we're going along with the times. And check out... Uh, old articles and features on fandompost.com and oldtakunoradio.com oldtakunoradiomagazine.com and uh, check out the Chihayafuru episode uh, I did with uh, Anime is Lit podcast that was amazing times and check out those other podcasts that you get on Chihayafuru with uh, Basil, my awesome cast and here on the Taiku podcast where we actually talk about good anime once can I tell you, Jared is so butthurt. <laughs> this is this is going to be in the this going to be in the episode now. <laughs> that uh, I have, I have talked about Chiaya Furu on every other podcast, 
except for uh, old talking to radio. <laughs> so I promised him we would talk about season three, like exclusively. Uh, also, go watch Ti Fudu season three because it's airing now yeah. and it's lovely. Uh, yeah. Can you also change Old Kakuno Radio to uh, We a Boomer Radio? We a Boomer. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I saw that tweet earlier today, and then I just searched for it while you were talking. I found it <laughs> just for this. Um, I appreciate the effort. Where was I? You can find me on Twitter at CompassionateK. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Taiku Podcast. It's T A I I K U. And you can find all of our episodes over at TaikuPodcast.com. Hopefully, this one will be released soon and not cost me $5 billion to get my game. Otherwise, I'll have to re record a high and low podcast. Thanks, Nick, for talking about bad anime. I know it was a good time sync for you. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Skype opened and you were like, "Hello, everybody." <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even have time to bring up my web pages. So one thing I think is really interesting is uh, who wrote who wrote this movie. I did see that uh, or the story. Yeah, you mean yeah, actually, yeah, Ed McBain, Evan Hunter under his pen name. Yep. And this guy also freaking wrote Hitchcock's The Birds. I told Dana that. I'm like, you know Egg McBain? He could a lot of books, or at least way more books than I do. Uh, yeah. And he was like, no. Or he's like, yes. And then I was like, uh, oh, he wrote this, uh, the book that this movie is based on. And he's like, Egg McMahon did that? I apparently uh, did not pronunciate. Oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I just got it when you said it back. <laughs> we got to really make sure for you tonight. <laughs> I don't know. That's exactly how I speak. <laughs> Alright, anyway, everybody ready? I guess. Uh, I'm awake. What's up, baby cakes? Uh, I don't need to be called back. Baby cakes, you're my baby cakes. Is this how you open up with Jared, too? No. I'm going to call him that you're cheating on him? No. I mean, he knows. Oh, I see. It's that kind but of But don't rub it in. <laughs>